The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But but here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The Gospel of the Lord. This past Friday was a very strange day that uh, highlighted for me the wonder and a variety of the physical world that we inhabit. The beauty of it and also the way that humanity has, for better and for worse, imposed our will upon the created order, at least temporarily imposed 
our will on it. My family and I left Friday morning, early on Friday morning, left Florida, where we had been on the beach. We left with sand between our toes, having shoveled sand on the beach, made castles and such, flying in a miraculous bird made of aluminum. We arrived in Boston on Friday early afternoon, still with sand between our toes, but also now with snow blowing into our necks and eyes and ears. And I spent Friday early evening shoveling not sand, but snow. I've always loved flying in airplanes, but it has always seemed a bit wrong to me for humans to be able to move so quickly from one place to another. The body finds itself in one place, but the mindset and the thinking faculties and the whole interior time clock, everything that helps us navigate our way in the world is still somewhere else. And I tend to be out of sync for a number of days. As a species, as humans, I think we may have moved so quickly in our quest to master our environment that we may have ruined it such that it cannot recover. Unlike our minds, which eventually do usually catch up with our bodies, the planet that we inhabit may not recover from the travel, so to speak, that we have imposed upon it. I should say as I continue that I'm hardly an environmentalist, I'm hardly what you would call affectionately a tree hugger, but I do count myself and our family a fairly faithful recycler. Trips to the Acton Dump and Recycling Center are considered an outing that we look forward to as a family. My son loves to throw things into the big green dumpsters. And as a family, we own two fuel-efficient, pretty fuel-efficient cars, and we feel unabashedly superior to those who drive Hummers and gas-guzzling SUVs that pass us on the road. We've tried to insulate our house well, not only to uh, save money, but also to save precious natural resources. And our washer is a front loader. I'm sure all of you have a front loading washing machine. It's much more efficient, saves water. And we have some fuel efficient light bulbs in our house. And we have a new boiler that uh, is more efficient than the 51 year old boiler we got rid of, and so forth. But we're not vegans, for example, we, nor do we eat only organic, free-range, humanely butchered meat. We don't have solar panels or a hybrid car, and we don't only buy produce that's locally grown and in season and so forth. So we're not serious environmentalists. But I've noticed, and maybe you have noticed as well, an alarming tidal wave of data about what humans are doing to the earth. And you may have noticed that people of faith, people of Christian faith, 
have begun to hear a call to repent. There's no other word to use but repent, to turn around, to change direction in our ways of treading upon the earth. As world citizens, simply as being reading, thinking human beings who pay attention, you may know that in February of this year, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a report in Paris based on a massive synthesis of the best, most up-to-date scientific research and came to the conclusion that humans are responsible for global warming. They came, the figure, I think, was they're 90% sure, which that's like an A- minus on a test, right? That's really, really good. It doesn't get a lot better than that or more uh, certain than that, that humans are having an impact on making the planet warmer. As a human citizen, as a citizen of the world, you may also know that a few weeks ago that the film An Inconvenient Truth, a film about global warming and humans' role in it, won an Oscar for Best Documentary. You may also know as a citizen of Concord that at the high school here in town this coming Saturday, there will be a global warming summit from 9 in the morning to 2 in the afternoon where you can learn all the different ways that we are having a negative impact on our planet and ways that you can, we can, as individuals, do something about it. The uh, film, An Inconvenient Truth, will also be screened there if you haven't seen it already. As Christians in this parish, you may also know that there are members of this parish who have known about this emergency for years and as part of their Christian commitment they've been active in doing something about it. You may also know as Christians in this parish that the Episcopal Bishops of New England in 2003 issued a pastoral letter on the environment. It's actually uh, linked to our website. If you haven't read it you can go home and scroll all the way down to the bottom on the left hand side and get to that letter. Our bishops in that letter distill theological and scriptural uh, foundations for urgent action on behalf of the environment. If you read the window, our newsletter, you'll know that Tony, our rector, has tied what we eat every day to the impact of agribusiness on the environment. Eating a pound of beef does more destruction to the environment than driving, I can't remember what number of miles it was in your car, but it was an astounding, an astounding statistic that what we eat has a terrific impact on the environment. And he's led a number of parishioners in a Lenten meatless day in order to see if we can put that knowledge to action on behalf of the created order. Or I read just the other day about a day-long symposium at Virginia Theological Seminary, the largest, oldest, and wealthiest of our Episcopal seminaries. They're having a day-long symposium entitled The Water of Life, the Earth's Water Crisis. And the keynoter there is none other than our former presiding bishop, Frank Griswold. And, finally, you might know that right now, as we speak, 
there are, I hope, hundreds of people engaging in the walk for interfaith walk for climate change, which began in Northampton, Massachusetts, as the snow was coming down fast and furious, and which will conclude next Saturday, Copley Square in Boston, where there will be a rally to bring awareness uh, on behalf of the religious communities of this state to this urgent question. Each morning, those walkers are beginning at a church or a synagogue, and they're ending at a church or synagogue. Some of you may be planning to take part in that walk as it gets closer to where we are. Now, all this is not to say that as Christians we all agree on what the correct approach to the natural created environment is. I'm sure we don't. But it is to say that part of our Christian worldview must include the environment as a sphere of concern. Whatever our decisions about how we act, it is not for a Christian to say we're not supposed to care about the created order. It's not an option. Now, by now you're probably thinking, maybe Nick got too much sun in Florida. What does any of this have to do with today's gospel reading? Well, after I offer my view on the connection with today's gospel, you may still think I got too much sun in Florida. But here we go. The passage from Luke this morning that we heard is one of the most beloved passages in all the Gospels. It often goes by the name of the parable of the return of the prodigal son. And a traditional reading of this parable, and a good and true and powerful and profound reading of this parable, is that each of us, in some way, is the prodigal son. In our lives... We have rudely and selfishly and thoughtlessly taken what God has freely given us in our lives and we have wasted it and wasted it until we find ourselves in a pit, unable to lift ourselves up. And we realize, as the prodigal son does, or hope that we realize, that our only help is in the God God who gave us life, that gave us the gifts of life and all that is in it. And if we turn, and if we turn, and admit our fault, we will be not only received with open arms, our God will run to greet us with open arms. A key part of this process is repentance. Turning around. The word literally means to turn around in Greek, to face a different direction, to turn one's body, mind, and spirit, face a different way, to go in the opposite direction that you've been going in. Jesus, of course, tells this story in response to scribes and Pharisees who condemn Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. His message is clear. It's those who think themselves to be beyond God's love and mercy, but who are ready to turn toward God. It's those who are most ready and able to receive God's mercy and love. And it is with such persons as these whom God especially desires to dwell, to restore to wholeness. 
Now, this is a critical way for all of us to understand this parable and to take it to heart. In no way do I undermine, want to undermine that way of understanding it. But I do want to add to it. That way of thinking is primarily individualistic. I want to offer perhaps a corporate understanding of the parable. What if we imagined the prodigal son as all of humanity and particularly a humanity that is affluent, that is technologically savvy, that has power and intelligence beyond all imagining, a humanity that was given an inheritance by God of intelligence and reason and skill and given especially by God an unbelievably rich and beautiful creation. Earth and plants and animals of infinite variety, of clouds, of rain and snow, of rocks and mountains, of breezes, of lakes and rivers. What if God has let us go our own way with these gifts, allowing us to squander it and also allowing us to feel the impact of our actions and choices? What if it's not too late? What if it's not too late to return to the intended beauty and balance that God intends for creation? The science seems to be crystal clear. We are squandering the gift of the earth that was given into our care. And it is time to repent, turn around, change direction, face a different way of the actions that have brought the creation to this place where it is now. Now, lest we think that the Christian tradition does not have within it the resources and exhortations around the natural world, open your Hebrew Bible and see in place after place the record of our faith indicates that God cares deeply about the created order, all aspects of it, the land, the animals that dwell in it, the plants that grow in it. The Psalms are full of exclamations of the glory of God and very clear that the land, the created order, does not belong to humanity. It belongs to God, the God who created it. For sure, that message is not always unambiguous, and for sure, throughout the millennia, interpreters have read the Bible to uh, indicate or to justify, I should say, horrendous treatment of humans and the created order. But I think the Holy Spirit is leading us out of such a way of thinking and leading us to show, to see, that Scripture in the Hebrew Bible calls us to preserve creation, not to destroy it. The New Testament as well contains passages that see redemption in cosmic, not just human terms. Perhaps one of the most famous passages in the New Testament, John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son. Well, the word for world there is not humans. It's not people. It's cosmos. The whole created order. God loved the whole created order so much that he sent Jesus to redeem it. Paul's exhortation or reminder or his letter to the Corinthians this morning reminds us of that as well. The creation is made new in what Jesus has done. If we participate in Jesus' redeeming work, we're meant to include creation as well, not just humanity. Now, it's not only a question of the impact that humans have had on the created non-human order, on water and trees and soil and plants and animals and so forth. It's not just a question of that, although that is critical. It is also a justice issue for human beings as well. For without a doubt, it is the poorest of human beings who suffer the most, who bear the brunt of humanity's degradation of the environment. This is not just about rocks and trees, friends. It's about human beings. I'm going to quote now from our bishop's pastoral letter from 2003, the letter that uh, the Province One bishops of New England, Episcopal bishops of New England, wrote to all of us. And I'm quoting now. The poor, the marginalized, and the least powerful of our human neighbors are those who suffer most from illness and pollution caused by environmental degradation. Generators, incinerators, and waste disposal facilities are concentrated in impoverished neighborhoods, and probably we should say in impoverished countries as well. Children in our inner cities suffer alarming rates of asthma, overemphasis on the private on the use of private vehicles deprives the poor of good public transportation. Exploitation of the poor is closely linked to the exploitation of the earth. Think of the extracting industries. And our quest for social justice and economic sustainability must rest on a foundation of ecological stability. As baptized Christians, we are clearly called to care for creation, loving our neighbors as ourselves. Through prayer and action to protect the earth, we acknowledge the ongoing redemption of all creation in Christ. And we minister to Christ himself, who particularly identifies with the outcast and the suffering. That's the end of that passage. But it all begins with repentance, with turning around, changing direction, running back. How bad does it have to get before we turn around and begin to face in a different direction? Amen.